Hi everyone, I'm your host NG and welcome to the 53rd episode of the podcast Sounds About Right? Audiobooks help us understand the world And on this episode I was joined by Stephen H. Miles Author of the book, The Torture Doctors, Human Rights Crimes and The Road to Justice And at least 100 countries employ torture doctors Including both dictatorships and democracies And in the book Stephen fearlessly explores who these physicians are What they do, how they escape justice and what can be done to hold them accountable. It was great discussing the book with him, and I hope you enjoy the episode. In the book, you describe a torture doctor as a sphinx, a human's face with a lion's body, as well as a chimera of beast and healer, why does understanding these two parts help in defining what a torture doctor is? Well, first, what torture is, is torture is done by a government. This is not the kind of crime where somebody locks somebody in a basement and beats them up. Torture is, is when a person is acting in an official capacity to intentionally cause pain and suffering. And so this is torturing by definition is something that is done by governments. And I was, as a doctor, was interested in the role of doctors in torturing and found that doctors are built into the system of torture in the modern world wherever torture occurs. And I guess because one usually associates a doctor with being a healer, it brings a question, why do physicians take part in torture? Well, one thing they do not take part in because they're not coerced. Coercion is extremely rare. Mostly these people are careerists. They do this because they get fast promotions in the military and they're paid extremely well. Uh, It is against the interests of government to coerce or threaten doctors because, for example, in a country like say, Sierra Leone, to just pick an example, they have very few physicians there. And if it becomes known that they're threatening physicians to participate in torture, then their doctors will flee to another country. And that will, that will be a political event that will hurt the stability of the government. So, Steve, what is the specialized action of a physician's role when it comes to torture? They do three things. First, they falsify medical records and death certificates to conceal the fact that torture has happened. For example, they might say somebody died of a heart attack at age 27 and not note the massive trauma that the person had. And so once a doctor has done that, that becomes the official cause of death. Second, what they do is they devise methods of torture that don't leave scars uh, because scars are evidence. And so increasingly, because of the fear of prosecution or human rights advocates, countries prefer what's called stealth torture, that is torture that does not leave scars, like near suffocation 
or near freezing or hitting somebody with a towel or phone book over their chest when the whip is applied. The third thing they do is that they devise methods of torture that will allow the government to ramp the pain and suffering up to a maximum without killing somebody. So, for example, if somebody has asthma, a physician will supervise putting a plastic bag over the person's head, uh, but will make sure that there is a drug available to treat an asthma attack if that occurs in the course of that person being suffocated. That's for persons who are not supposed to die. And I got from your book that there has been torture doctors in many parts of the world, including Asia, Africa, the Americas and Western Europe. But despite this, Steve, the truth is that coercive interrogation and torture is not exactly effective, is it? That's right. Essentially, around 150 countries that I can find practice torture and physicians are built into the torture system in all of those countries. Do you mind touching on some of the practices that's taken place, whether it be in recent or distant history in some of these countries, Steve? Well, certainly physician-supervised whipping is well-known. Physician-supervised amputations are well-known. A technique called waterboarding, which is where a person is put on their back and then on a plank, and then the head is put down so that their nostrils are pointing straight up into the air and they are restrained and then water is poured over their head and so they can't prevent their throat from being flooded with water. This produces a sensation of drowning. Another one that's common, is, uh, although becoming less so, is burns. Electricity is becoming less so and electricity can be applied under the skin or it can be applied by a cattle prod to the back of the throat or it can be applied with a prod into the rectum or uh, vagina. The thing with electricity though is that anti-torture advocates have found that electricity leads to a particular kind of calcium deposit under the skin and so it's no longer hidden you can tell when somebody has had electric shock for torture. A chapter that stuck out to me, of course, was the one titled The Paradox of the United Kingdom. Why would you say it was important for the UK to be highlighted in this book, Steve? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, the UK was formally charged by the European Council with the practice of torture in Northern Ireland, and none of their physicians or psychologists who took part in that torture was prosecuted. Second, England was one of the countries that invented the modern anti-torture stand. Third, England was particularly brutal in the application of medicalized torture in the country of Kenya during the independence uprising by the Mau Mau faction and also hid an extensive program of torture in the country of Aden. So that because it invented 
much of the modern standard against torture, and because its record of torture continued to the present day, and because they taught torture through the entire Commonwealth, for example, they taught the practice of physician-supervised flogging to the entire Commonwealth, and so that's why you see it, for example, in Pakistan, uh, Malaysia, India, uh, and through the former colonies in um, uh, in Africa, England is worth highlighting. And you, I think you mentioned in the book how the British Medical Association opposed the action of flogging, but without essentially classing it as torture. Is that correct, Steve? Yeah, that's correct. The British Medical Association naturally opposes torture, but even when they were faced with the identification of several score of physicians uh, who tortured during the war against terror, uh, they declined to pursue or argue for the delicensing of those physicians. So is it fair to say that because of the influence the UK has had on its other colonies in terms of exporting medically assisted torture, that it owes more of a responsibility in trying to outlaw it in countries where these practices still exist? Well, I think the real problem with countries like the United States and uh, the UK is that when they say the international standards that they made do not apply uh, in a situation of national security, then what they are doing is giving a green light to torture to governments in, say, Mozambique, North Korea, China, um, which have active programs of torture, and they just say, well, if the United States does it and they don't apply any punishments, uh, then they shouldn't be talking to us about it. trying to bring about an end to this, just how effective or integral has human rights organizations been in bringing about change? That's a great question. And I think that we should not look at it in the short term, but we should look at it in the long term. Mm -hmm. It took roughly 2,000 years for Western society to eliminate slavery. There are certainly still pockets of slavery, but even as recently as 150, 200 years ago, uh, approximately 60% of the world's population was enslaved or in debt peonage. Now the issue of slavery is slowly being eradicated. Punitive amputations are being eradicated. Stoning is being eradicated. In the last 150 years, women have gotten the right to vote and so on. And I think that we have to look at the abolition of torture as part of a continual progress in human rights, uh, which has accelerated basically over the last 250 years. So I think we should be optimistic. Hmm. I noticed that you mentioned in the book the torture that took place during the Nazi regime and the death of Stephen Biko in South Africa and how the World Medical Association, WMA, on each occasion didn't hold these doctors accountable. So is it fair to say that human rights organisations have been more effective 
than medical associations? The medical system, as a set of institutions, is actively complicit in the medicalization of torture in the world. The World Medical Association and the American Medical Association with the British Medical Association actively work to prevent uh, the prosecution of the doctors who tortured Stephen Biko to death. The World Medical Association has a standard against torture, um, but they have not given any example on how to hold hearings. Uh, they've not produced a casebook on hearings. They do not punish or uh, disenroll any of their members who are known to practice uh, physician torture. It is simply a process of uh, uh, tacit uh, accommodation. Hmm. And it was actually Amnesty International who, for lack of a better term, campaigned that torture doctors should be held accountable for their actions, wasn't it? That's right. For example, the after World War II, the medical associations got together and decided doctors should not torture. But then they gave a free pass to all the handful of the uh, Nazi physicians who tortured. And the United States basically recruited Nazi medical scientists who had tortured to work in the Defense Department under something called Operation Paperclip. Hmm. And uh, just speaking on accountability in general, just how rare is it for a country to take accountability for its torture doctors, Steve? It's pretty rare. There are about 60, maybe 70 cases in which uh, physicians have been held accountable, mostly by the courts, sometimes by the medical associations, although when the medical associations act, then the courts tend to follow. But for example, if you take a country like Argentina, which is pretty typical, they know several hundred doctors who are involved in torture and they moved against uh, less than a dozen of them in, a, in their second largest province. And they did not move against any of them in all their other provinces, including their largest one. Just in regards to the globalization of torture, I, I, I believe it's a case of there's some doctors who or clinicians who had taken part in torture and were still able to practice as well, wasn't there? Yes, the UK has a couple uh, non-torture doctors practicing. Uh, one worked in uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, prison and the other one, I believe, was Rwandan. Hmm. And is it true that was Greece the first country to actually punish a torture doctor, Steve? Yeah, what's so interesting about the Greek case was, this was quite a while ago, and they did a prosecution of military officials, and the, one of these guys happened to be a physician, and nobody remarked on that in particular until 25 years later when they were thinking about physician accountability for torture and looking for precedents, and then this guy popped up. So I had a friend track him down in uh, Athens, and he's currently practicing in a suburb of Athens. At least he was uh, 10 years ago. The 
chapter I listened to regarding the US and the war on terror. Yeah. Is it fair to say that in the US, the war on terror gave Americans the excuse, albeit a corrupt one, to allow physicians to be part of heinous crimes and not to get brought to justice? Well, that's absolutely true. In fact, that's how I got into this whole topic, because I was looking at the question when I saw the pictures of torture at a prison called Abu Ghraib in Iraq, the question I had was, well, the, the, the prison had medical staff. How come the medical, how did the military prevent the medical staff from blowing the whistle on it? And eventually I read 60, 70,000 pages of declassified documents, and I found that the doctors were actually built into the system of abuse. And I published names when I could identify them. Um, a lot of them were blacked out, but uh, none of them were actually held to account uh, or had their licenses uh, suspended or uh, suffered criminal penalties. Now, this is a disaster, a human rights disaster, because then if you take a country as, for example, Madagascar, which was under uh, a torturing regime, they quoted the U.S. experience and said, see, these standards aren't meant to be followed because the United States says, well, torture in the defense of national security is uh, perfectly fine. And even in the way that they approached that, is it true that they... Um... I think I, I got this from a part in your book actually as well, Steve, that they wanted to outlaw that uh, Al-Qaeda members cannot be treated as prisoners of war. So did that allow them to once again yeah. treat them in a certain specific way when it came to, to torturing them? Yeah, they they basically passed a law that illegally drew a uh, circle around the Al-Qaeda people and said, well, these aren't POWs, there's something else. Uh, because Al-Qaeda is not a nation, these people did not fall within the Geneva Convention. But the Geneva Convention is very specific. It says combatants in a time of war cannot be tortured. It doesn't refer to any nation of those combatants. Hmm. Okay. And just even beyond that, when it came to some of the actions that were taken by the uh, clinicians and f physicians that took part in this, it got to the point where I think in Iraq, they stopped recording death certificates. Or at one point, there was even faking death certificates on cause of deaths as well, wasn't there? Yeah, there was a first there was falsification. And then there was suppression of the death certificates. I was able to count about a hundred death certificates or deaths of prisoners during the war on terror that are, are reasonably attributed to abuse, okay? But when they turned off the reporting mechanism because it was annoying people, uh, then it became anybody's guess. I mean, the, the Department of Defense was falsifying death certificates. They were post-dating them. They were putting bizarre findings on them. For example, a soldier went and shot a prisoner point blank. A soldier was outside of his the prisoner's cell, shot into the cell, killed the prisoner point blank. And then a uh, 
prison medical person came up and said, well, uh, there's an entry wound over the liver. Uh, I didn't turn him over to look for an exit wound. I didn't take off his clothes. But since I'm a pathologist, the cause of death can't be determined. Wow. Well, really. Wow. And just hearing about that, I suppose the action that was taken in trying to have civilians believe that the less they know, the better, and this is all for their best interest. Did that contribute to up to a certain point? I, I can't say this. I can't say this entirely, but up to a certain point, did it contribute to just a lack of outrage regarding this in general? Because you know, many people wouldn't believe that America would be taking part in these kind of practices because they just are completely unaware of it. I think it's three pronged. There's a lack of outrage. Prisoners are marginalized. There was a show that told how great torture worked running at the time of the war on terror. Um, but the third thing is that the media in the United States, uh, at least, is saturated with torture as entertainment. Rape, police brutality, military brutality is, is a standard plot uh, that is built into movies, usually with it being instrumental to accomplishing the good sides and uh, goal of vanquishing evil. And so people live in a society where prisoners are marginalized, but also where torture is valorized and where they don't know any of the research about torture. And so it's hard to build accountability off of that. Hmm. So I guess to a certain extent, people have become desensitized to it because they're just exposed to it in everyday entertainment. I think so. I, I mean, none of my friends who are in anti-torture work will, can watch uh, torture for entertainment. We just, we can't do it. Lastly, Steve, what more can medical licensing boards and associations do in promoting more accountability around this? Frankly, all a medical board can do is revoke a license, which I'm in favor of them doing. However, if they remove a license of a military torturer, the military has the option of giving the person special practices on a base. I think Primarily, this is a matter for the courts to undertake. I think Britain, for example, should engage in a wholesale criminal investigation of the 60 or so medical professionals who were named by a special solicitor's report as having participated in torture in the war on terror. I think that the clinicians who were involved in torturing People during the so-called Troubles in Northern Ireland should be named, delicensed, and uh, subjected to criminal punishment. I think the same is true in the United States. And I also think that we have to build a system of international justice that 
is robust enough so that it's not simply taking on the leaders of countries like Slobodan Milosevic, but it can actually go down to the rank officers who torture so that in the situation where a country will not prosecute its own, we have an international justice system that will. That was Stephen H. Miles, author of the book, The Torture Doctors, Human Rights Crimes and The Road to Justice. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Stephen for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.